What is preaching? That was the subject of our study last week. What is it? Isaac Watts tells us in the first 130 pages of his fantastic book on logic that definitions are the most important part of study. Before you begin your study, you must have set in your mind that you will determine what the thing is that you're about to study. Logic teaches us that we search for definitions and we've labored to get a definition of preaching. Preaching is persuasive Bible teaching. It's got the Bible as its core and its content. It has teaching as its method or its vehicle and has persuasion as the flavor and the drive and the energy and the petrol that gets that vehicle to its place. Today we're going to study on page 19, teaching. If Bible preaching is teaching, then how do we do it? Let's look at some of those. I'll give 15 rules tonight. Let's begin with page 19. New Testament preaching is intrinsically connected to teaching. We covered this last week, so just a few comments briefly here. All the the apostles taught the scriptures in the open air. In John Piper's excellent series on biographies of great Christians, he includes George Whitefield. In an hour and ten minute biography or so, Piper discusses Whitefield's life and ministry. And he gives a cut, a, a section from one of Whitfield's sermons, just like our brother has done with us, to find cross-references. And Piper reads that section where George Whitfield, preaching in a field to thousands upon thousands of people without a microphone, while he's probably being opposed, shouted at, and attacked, George Whitfield makes a distinction between forensic justification and the justification scheme taught by the Catholics. Without notes, preaching to people in the open air who are coming from work or going to work, they're normal, natural people, they're not special, specially trained, and Whitfield is a Bible teacher getting the nuances of Christian theology right into their hearts. And the best preachers have all done that. Paul the Apostle did that, which is why. This is remarkable. Have you ever noticed this? In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's answering questions about the second coming. And he says, you know about the day of the Lord because I told you about this when I was with you. He does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When there's what we would call difficult or complex questions about prophecy and the second coming... Paul the Apostle writes to the Thessalonians, you already know this because when I was with you, I taught you. Does anyone know how long Paul the Apostle was with the Thessalonians? He planted that church on a second missionary journey. And it says in Acts chapter 17, it actually says how long he was with that church before he moved on. And then about a year later, he writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians back to them because they have questions. And they write to him and say, well, well, what, what about this and this? And Paul says, did you forget already the the kinds of things I taught you? So Paul is teaching them complex, nuanced, difficult theological concepts in this amount of time that he's with them. 
Isaac, take a guess how long he was with the Thessalonians. You've got the number right, but the time wrong. Stick with three and change it to another word. Go a little lower. Acts 17 verses 1 to 3 says he was with them for three Sabbath days, which means three Saturdays. So let's say he came in on, on the Lord's Day and he left on a Friday. That means it's about 20, you know, a month. He's there for a relatively brief period of time and he's got to be sowing during the day and preaching at night. And he preaches nuanced, difficult things to the people. He's a Bible teacher. And the gospel, the gospels and the epistles demand, require, imply there must be teaching. Because you've got all these statements that can just boggle you. Some of them are so simple that you feel like I just picked up a gem sitting right there, perfectly polished, and it was just sitting on the ground. But others are rocks, and you say, there's some glory in this. Let me just see if I can work to chip away the coal and get down to that diamond inside. We need Bible teaching because much of the New Testament was written as letters, like the book of Luke and the book of Acts and then Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians. And when Paul writes and when Hebrews is written and James Those letters are commonly jam-packed with verbs and nouns and just um, a treasure chest full of these terms and concepts and metaphors. And they need to be taught and explained. So, we also need to be teachers because the Bible uses terms that we don't know, like reconciliation and propitiation and redemption. We don't know what those terms mean. And some of you have been in the church for a decade or 20 or 30 years. And if I asked you, what is redemption or what is reconciliation and give me two verses, you would probably struggle to do that. What is regeneration? What is justification or glorification? What is calling? You might find it difficult even to explain those words. But the Bible speaks at length about each of those terms. And we're going to need to become Bible teachers if we're going to give it. And then next, the Bible, we must teach the Bible as preachers because the Bible uses words that really aren't that difficult, we had thought, but it uses the words in ways we hadn't expected, like the word kingdom. You know what a kingdom is, right? Because if you drive for an hour to the north, you're going to come to a border. And we all know what that border is. It's the dividing line between two nations. But Jesus says, you are a chosen people a holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? And he came preaching the kingdom of God. And then he said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is inside of you. It's within you. It's in your midst. What does that mean? He takes words or terms that we thought we knew and uses them in ways that are surprising to us, that catch us off guard. And we're going to need to become teachers because otherwise the people who read will lose interest or they will get foolish and superficial definitions of these concepts and they will live their whole lives either stunted in their ability to grow and bear fruit to the glory of God and to raise their children or they will live their lives as false Christians and they will go to hell cursing your name who did not give to them the truth. And if he has not called you to be a pastor, he has probably called you to be a father. 
and let none of us ever have the blood of our children on our hands because we were not in our own time into our own little congregation before us, Bible teachers. Church history also shows a long line of godly men who were Bible teachers. Since we've already gone through church history recently, I'll skip over those. Let's go to page 20 now and let's give a little bit of time, really the rest of this, to teaching as a learned skill. These 15 rules. In fact, let's do this before we get into the 15 rules. Why don't we go to the end on page 21 and look at some of the reasons why churches don't like to teach. Let me give you four reasons why teaching is uncommon today. Many churches don't like to teach the Bible. This is page 21, number three. Are our numbers the same? Is everyone the same as me with page 21? Or are the page numbers off? What page are you on? I think I'm one more than yours, like 22. Okay, page 22. Who on page 22 has Roman numeral three contemporary churches? Okay, I'm so sorry about this. I sent this to the printer, and for some reason, it's printing on different pages. So please pardon me if it's either on page 21 or page 22. Look for Roman numeral three. Contemporary churches do not like to teach the Bible carefully. Let me give four reasons or observations regarding this phenomenon. Teaching the Bible means that the preacher must study every time he speaks. And that kind of discipline, that kind of rigor, that kind of culture is heavy. So very few men will will carry it. Integrity is uncommon. And integrity for a pastor means... He consistently picks up the heavy weight of studying his Bible so that he is giving to his people the pure, undiluted Word of God. Number two, teaching the Bible means that the preacher must stretch his own attention span and that of his hearers. But especially today, when technology, as I've mentioned a number of times, this excellent book, Neil Postman. 200-page book, in fact, less than 200 pages, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Neil Postman's point in that little book that I read last year, and then my wife read it with me on our holiday. And that little book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, says this. Technology has changed the way we think. He's not saying it's wrong to use technology. He's not saying it's wrong to, oh, there's technology all around us. Writing is a kind of technology he deals with right at the beginning of the book. Writing is a technology. We need it. We need all the different kinds of technology. But we must not think these technologies are neutral. We must not think to ourselves, it's all good and there's nothing negative. They're very powerful. And if you haven't thought carefully, you might find yourself being knocked off balance and not even knowing it. One of the effects of technology. What's that? When was the book published? Yeah, wasn't it 85, I think? Yeah, that's very... Yeah, it's around 85. Which means that was pre... Before smartphones and internet. Yeah. Yeah. TikTok, before TikTok. And then because we... I said, let me just say the second one. He has a second book out. It's called Technopoly, and it's even better than the first, but it's not as accessible. So Technopoly got, for me, higher rankings than the first one. It was written in 94... Technopoly, in that book he argues, technology is conquering our lives because you all didn't read my first book and pay attention. 
And the point that I'm raising here is simply this. Not that technology is bad. I use it and thank God for it. But be aware of what's happening to yourself. And I don't think many people have pondered what happens when I have a Facebook account, when I've turned on notifications, and then put a pocket computer in my, in my, right beside me, going everywhere with me, including to bed, so that no matter where I'm at, I can feel the buzz, even during a church service, and I'll just glance down because I don't want people to know I'm looking, but I'm looking, and they saw you. <laughs> and see what that's done to you? Would anyone have done that in the 1500s? But it's changed the way we think. And one of the negative effects has been to decrease our already weak attention span. Pastors often don't teach the Bible because they don't have an attention span that will allow them to go. Our dear brother here said he went through the cross-references in Luke 12. How long did it take him? Two and a half hours. And he's been a pastor for about 20 years. So after studying the Bible for two decades and preaching somewhere around eight or nine times a week, for most of that time, it still takes him two hours or two and a half hours to work through the 53 cross-references for one passage. Now, many of us must be honest. How long is our attention span? And as long as we're mentioning Paul, let me mention one more thing. Years ago, he mentioned to me, I'm trying to do something. He lives in Bakota, 40 kilometers to the east. And he said, I'm trying to drive. Whenever I have to come to town, I'm trying to drive that whole way, getting one thought in my mind and not letting it leave. He said, I can't do it yet, but I'm going to get there. What's he doing there? He's, he's, He's lifting. He's lifting weights now, but he's, not, he's married now. He doesn't care about his biceps. He cares about his, his mindsets. Let me figure out how to make my mind sharper and faster. Well, we need to do that. Number three, letter C. Teaching the Bible means that the preacher must mark sin, separate from false churches, attack heresy, rebuke disobedient brothers, and change sinful lifestyles. That's a lot of negative. And I listed those in different categories because each of those come up in almost every book of the Bible, some kind of negative. But in order to do that, the man again has to have the kind of character and integrity to study the Bible so he'll have courage. John MacArthur said, I'm never nervous when I preach because I'm always prepared. A great many people are not Bible teachers because they're not prepared. And they wouldn't say, I wouldn't say this or I wouldn't say this because they, they don't have their artillery back there to back it up. They don't know the verses to be able to say, well, that comes from 1 Corinthians. That also comes from Ephesians. And outside of Paul, that comes in 1 John and it comes in Jude. And it comes in so many places that I have full confidence that the power and authority of God are behind what I'm going to say. Many people don't preach because they don't have that artillery. They haven't been storing up the arms munition pile for them. Letter D, teaching the Bible means the preacher might not be accepted by his hearers who may not want to study or repent or work hard during preaching. Once a year, Richard Baxter said, I intend and aim to preach a sermon above my people so that no one will think, oh, I've got it down now. I've settled everything. But the point here in letter D is that teaching the Bible frightens many pastors because if you're a Bible teacher... It may send people away. And if I send them away, how am I going to get more? I've only got 60 people to start with. What do I do now? 
And they're so insecure and so man-centered, like the people in John 12, the week before our Lord died, when a number of the chief priests had heard him preach, and after the, the feast of, um, of booths, just before Hanukkah, when he had preached in John chapter 10, many of the chief priests turned to him and believed on him. But then in John 12, verses 41 to 43, it says, because they feared the priests who had not yet turned, they wouldn't profess him publicly. And how many pastors are like that? Honestly, they still fear those guys and those guys and you and the guy who's paying that money every month. And if I say something that makes him mad, what am I going to do about my Toyota payment? And I still got seven years left on that lease. Well, it's not common to find a Bible teacher. And if you find one, encourage and pray for him. And if you are one or if you're aiming to be one, let's strengthen that now by looking at 15 laws for teaching. Page 20 or 21, as your handout may have it. It's Roman numeral 2. It begins at the top of the page. Teaching is a learned skill. Number 1, or letter A, I'll number these because I think it's easier to follow numbers. Number 1, listen to good teaching in order to learn how to teach. We all learn by imitation. I'm trying to start with some of the easier ones, then we'll work harder. And if some of these are difficult, maybe what you should do tonight as you're listening to this is say, let me just tick the ones that I can apply immediately. On this flash drive, we have the 10 sermons for this class that are chosen from gifted and godly men. Take these sermons, listen, listen to them, and ask, what can I learn there about the art of teaching? Not necessarily about what they were saying about the passage, but the method of teaching. What did they do that I can borrow from and imitate in a godly way that would be appropriate to my personality? Letter B, take time to prepare. Your teaching will never rise higher than your preparation. Now remember, preparation can come either in the short term, knowing I've got to prepare for this coming Lord's Day. That means I've got 168 hours from Sunday to Sunday. And I've just got a few hours and I've got to sleep 8 times 7, that's 56. And I've got to work 8 times 7, that's 56. There's 112. And I'm left with 56 now. So what am I going to do with the last 56? Oh, there's dressing and eating and driving. And there's this and there's coffee. What am I supposed to do with the rest of it? Somewhere in there, you're going to have to develop a culture, a habit, a lifestyle that says, I'm going to prioritize time for studying the Bible. As Paul's mentioned already tonight and in the past, this preparation is cumulative. That is, what you read today in Fox's Book of Martyrs, that counts for your sermon preparation for 2024. Because what's going to happen is several things. Your soul is being affected to love and adore Christ to the point of death. And that's going to affect sermons in the future. Your will will be steeled against backsliding because you remember those people you read in that book and how their conscience tortured them when they fell away. You're going to know something about Christian unity. So in the future, when you're preaching and you're tempted to either cut people off too quickly or include people too quickly in your circle of friends, and we all fall off the donkey one way or the other. Some of us are cutters. I want to cut that guy. Forget him. And some of us are just hugging everyone. And and like Billy Graham, and we just, everyone, just take them all together. Wait a minute. Does he know the gospel? Fox's Book of Martyrs will slowly influence you even if you don't know it. The other night I said something to Amy and then I paused. I don't remember if she caught me on it or if I caught myself on it. But I realized I don't think that's mine. 
And there was a discussion for a moment about where that insight came from. And I don't know now, I can't remember the particular concept we were discussing, but I thought, I think it might've come from Frame. And then Amy says, no, it comes from Watts because she was reading, we're reading a book by Isaac Watts right now. No, it comes from Watts. I said, but I don't know which one I read first, Watts or Frame on this. By reading and praying and preparing over many years, you become this big mix, this big salad of all the influences that you've had over your life. When I preach, I think I sound more like the men who influenced me, the Martin Lloyd-Jones that I listened to, John Piper that I listened to, reading the Bible, listening to my dear brothers, watching them, seeing their examples. I become like them. That's the long preparation, not the kind of thing. You can't do that in 56 hours this coming week. No one's able to say, well, I've got 50 hours this week. I think I'm going to become like Lloyd-Jones. That's the work of a long time. Notice this in the notes. Do not stop studying until you can honestly say, you know why God put that passage in the Bible. If someone wants to say, how long should I prepare? The answer is, you should prepare until you can answer that question. If you can't answer that question, don't stop. Now, of course, you can do more. You can always reflect more and look for more cross-references, but at least you've got to say that. If you can't answer that question, don't stand up on the Lord's Day. That's the bare minimum. That's the bar at the beginning. If you can't answer the question of why God put it in the passage, why God put that passage in the Bible, you should not stand up. Someone said, he who prepares for 20 minutes speaks for two hours, and he who prepares for two hours speaks for 20 minutes. His point is, we all like to talk, and we all can ramble on, but good preparation will cause us to choose the right words and stick with those words. Number four, whatever may be your method, excellence can only be the result of strenuous effort. Underline that. Mark that down. Excellence can only be the result of strenuous effort. He who labors most on each sermon is usually the best preacher. Some time ago, I was asked to preach at an event. I haven't been asked to preach at very many events, but I was once or twice maybe in my life. And I took a lot of time to prepare because I anticipated the audience that would be there. And I took many hours, I don't know, 30 or more hours to prepare for that particular sermon. And when I was done, I only share this this illustration because of the precursor. When I was done, a man I respect said, I think that was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. And I did not think great thoughts of myself. I thought time and preparation really brings results. And that's what Dabney said. That's what he said. The guy who's the best is generally the guy who looks at the fish or the buffalo. Get your eyes in the text and keep it there. Letter three. Uh, But except before you go to number three, uh, regarding some of the comments you said about it's all the time, a lifetime conglomeration, do you think that's why it's so difficult to answer the question when someone says, how long does it take yeah. to, pre- to prepare a sermon each week? Yes. Um, could you help us understand, if someone asks you, how, long, how many hours does it take you per week to prepare a sermon? Um, 
How is that? I, uh, there's a sense which is a good question, but in another sense, it's difficult to answer that. No, but there's some helpful comments that we can talk about the topic if I can't exactly hit the bullseye. Um, but others in here can offer their insights as well. I, I appreciate Paul's bringing this topic up that I, I rarely have enough time to study that I say I, I don't want any more time to study. Very rarely would I preach saying I, I don't want any more time to study. But I commonly preach saying I, I know how to preach on this passage because I've read my Bible for an hour or 30 minutes a day for 20 years or 30 years now. And so I, I know that and I memorize those verses. So all of that adds up. And listening to a godly sermon this coming Lord's Day will influence your mind and your heart and your prayer and your reflection for the time when God calls you to preach six months from now or a year or two years or four years from now. So I don't think we can say a time to put on, pre- on preparation. But I can say that you should not preach until you can answer the question, what does the passage mean? And I'm going to go further. This is in a later lecture. I'm going to go further and say you should also not preach until you can say, God has dealt with me through this passage. There's some kind, because otherwise it will only be a lecture. I know what this passage means. I'm going to tell you. This passage about superlapsarianism. Supra, lapse, Aaron, ready, let's get started. But, but it goes past a lecture when you've seen the face of God, when you've feared him, when you've kissed the sun because of that passage. So I think there's those two elements that I would say, if, if you can't do both of those, don't, don't preach. And I hope that I am living in light of those two, although I rarely come to preach and say, I, I don't want more time. Maybe you do. You're, I think, though, your study habits are more disciplined. Well, I was going to say, there's a sense in which if, if a young man asks you that, I can see you saying, in one sense, it took me, whatever, seven hours this week. Or there's another true sense in which you could say, it took me 10,000 hours. Yeah. Or a lifetime. Because you're bringing to bear years of yeah. study. You did do the study. You just did it a long time ago. And that comes to bear when you come to that particular passage. Yeah. And so if you, are, if you are beginning in the art of teaching the Bible, then lean on the Holy Spirit. Do work your hardest. Stay up late. Put in all the hours that you can without infringing on other God's, God-sent responsibilities in your life at this time. With your wife, your children, or your job. And then labor so that you can honestly say, I worked I worked. God knows that I worked hard. And then go to him in prayer and say, you've got to help me. I am a child. I have to, I have to speak for God, for the ever-living one, and just fall on him. And may you learn the greatest lessons of your life in depending on his power. And if you can learn those at the beginning, you'll hopefully go on in those. Because even this week, I was humbled by the great weaknesses In my public pulpit ministry, I began to see such weaknesses in this that I thought, how could could I preach? How could people listen to me? And I thought, what a gift, what a gift that the Holy Spirit will not let us forget our own weakness. Uh, I think I said letter three. Let's try letter C or number three. 
Reject styles of preaching that are opposed to teaching. Reject anything that does not allow for reflection, heaviness, silence, pondering, conviction, weeping. It's an unbiblical way to talk if it does not promote the fear of God as prevented, presented in the Old Testament narratives. Letter D, Master Hermeneutics. What a blessing to have this class structured in the way that it is. Pay careful attention when Paul teaches. Master Hermeneutics. To master it means you could talk about it without being given time to prepare. If I asked you, talk about hermeneutics, could you talk sensibly for 15 minutes? Could you tell us what it is and then give us three or four principles about hermeneutics for 15 minutes? If you couldn't do that for 15 minutes, then you haven't really reached amateur stage. If you've mastered a subject, you could probably talk about it for an hour. If I ask you to tell me about what you do, and I mean really tell me about your job, tell me about how it starts and all the products and how things, you could talk to me for an hour. You could tell me how things go because you do it all day every day. We need to master hermeneutics so that we could, we could bring up these principles. Uh, observation and cross-references and context. He said, let me just tell you a few things about context. Let me tell you a few things about this. Letter E, number four, number five. Study theology. Study theology. And let me just give you two categories of theology here. In our course on hermeneutics, we dealt with each of them, but I'll just give a few here. Number one is biblical theology. Biblical theology follows the Bible's storyline. Or in a way to ask, to put it in a question, it would say, what is happening in the story of the Bible right now? That's called biblical theology. It's a manner of reading the Bible. Or I'll give another example of this. I have a biblical theology, uh, a book called Biblical Theology that goes through the entire New Testament. It's called A Biblical Theology of the New Testament. And in that book, the author of the book will come, for example, to John and uses very few cross-references from anywhere else in the Bible. He wants to know what does John say about salvation and demons and, and eternity and God and the Son and the Spirit. When he gets to James, he does the same thing. Try getting all of, all of the doctrines of the Bible from the book of James. That's something like what a biblical theology would do. It would go to the book of Exodus and say, I'm just an Exodus. Let me get the Trinity out of here. Let me see what, what, what's happening in Lamentations about sanctification. And it pulls all the doctrines of the Bible out of each book in the context as it's written. That's biblical theology. That's something like what we started last Sunday night in going through Genesis. And our next sermon will be Exodus in that. Number two is systematic theology. Systematic theology is more closely connected to what Pastor Schleilein dealt with in the first lecture tonight. It is grabbing cross-references from all over and arranging them in categories like God as the first category and salvation and church and future. So if you took all the verses in the Bible and you tried to drop them into one of these categories... 
And if the whole Bible was arranged, every single verse and every single statement in each verse was arranged in these categories, that would be called systematic theology because it's making a system. This is what the Bible says about God. This is what the Bible says about salvation, about the church, about the future, about sin, about the Bible itself, about angels and demons, etc. That's called systematic theology. So if someone says, what is justification? And you say, well, let me tell you, in Leviticus, and then also that's illustrated in Jehoshaphat's battle in 1 Kings, and again, it's clearly taught in Romans, and then in Galatians, that would be an example of systematic theology, because you're taking verses from throughout the Bible and putting them in a heading. You need to learn theology. The best way to learn theology is to read your Bible. The next best way to re- learn theology is to read the Confession of Faith. Because if you look on the Confession of Faith after each paragraph, there's verses from all over the Bible. The Confession of Faith is this. It's just got categories and they're putting every verse in its category. So if you want to teach well, study theology. Letter F, discover the purpose of the passage. That hints back to the question asked earlier. Don't stand up to preach unless you can say, I know why God put this in the Bible. Discover the purpose of the passage. Letter G, write your thoughts on a logical progression and outline. Paul will deal with this at length later on. I'm going to have a lecture on this as well later. Put your thoughts on a logical progression and outline. When we say an outline, we mean... Organized logic brought to your passage. Organization and logic brought to your passage. Letter H. If I could pick a favorite, it would probably be letter H. And I got this from Watts and a man named Jewett. Letter H. Reduce your study to one crisp, clear sentence. In fact, let me give you Jewett's sentence. He was a preacher 150 years ago. And he said, the most difficult part of my study, he wrote a book called The Preacher, His Life and Work. And the best sentence in that whole book is this one I'm about to give you a paraphrase for you. Jewett says, the most difficult part of my work is reducing my passage to one crisp, clear sentence like crystal. He said, I find this, this is almost exactly his words, I find this to be the most exacting part of my study. Reducing, let's say you're going to preach on two verses from 1 Timothy 4. Can you put those two verses in your own words in a way that's crisp and clear and gripping, that gets all the main ideas and includes no lesser ideas and doesn't leave any important ideas out? Can you gather it all up in a sentence a subject and a verb and some adjectives? That's hard work. And I picked that up after I was rebuked for being a foolish preacher. And I picked up Jay Adams' book, Preaching with Purpose. That's in the Great, great Books series. and did a 20-minute review of that book. And when I, when I read that book, in the book Preaching with Purpose, he tells you, 
Ask yourself, why is this passage in the Bible? And don't stand up to preach until you can answer that question. And it was from Adams that I then went and said, I'm going to have to learn how to summarize this in a sentence. And then I got Watts on logic, and he said the same thing. And I thought, now I know I'm on the right path. And I would urge you, if you're going to preach, summarize your sentence in a single, summarize your sermon in a single sentence. Letter I, define key terms. We've already dealt with this in our course on logic, so I'll just very briefly say, here's a simple method, a formula for making a definition. Can anyone, can anyone in here, any of the students remember, what's the formula for making a definition? Can you remember, Caleb? Want to shoot? That's it. Those are the two things. It's found there in your notes in letter I, number two. You want to first of all find out the thing in its essence. So you ask about any word or idea. What is this thing at its core? Is it furniture? Is it an idea? Is it a doctrine? Is it a sin? Is it God himself? What is this thing at its core? When you've answered the question, what is it at its core? Then you ask, how is it different from all the other things that are like it? So let's say you're talking about love. And you would say, well, what is love at its core? It's a virtue. It's a grace. It's a gift. Let's settle with virtue. Okay, it's a virtue. Well, are there other virtues? Give me some other virtues. Peace, kindness, patience, joy, hope. How does love differ from those other virtues and graces? That's what Watts tells us to do to find a definition. When you're going through your passage and you're getting ready to preach and you find a word there, ask yourself, do I really know what this is? Can I get at it right at its core? And sometimes it's not a single word. Sometimes you need to take Watts's uh, formula for definitions and apply it to an entire book of the Bible. You say, I want to define the book of Matthew. What is it at its core? It's teaching. Well, a lot of books are teaching. Teaching on the kingdom. And you're going to need to do that for discussions and conversations and debates. Get this thing right down to its core and then say, well, how does it differ from all the other things that are like it? Letter J. Turn your main points into pictures and metaphors like this. Let your light shine before men. That's helpful. Or Spurgeon. On perseverance, little by little, the snail reached the ark. <laughs> the prosperity gospel. I got this from Paul. Everyone loves the gospel queen when she is dressed with jewels, but few love her when she wears rags. Letter K, the next page. Preview and review your main points in the introduction and conclusion. When I say preview and review recently... There was this. The, the Puritans were the masters at, at word pictures. So it, that's, it's no surprise that he gave Spurgeon and Watson. Um, if you want to get good at that, do what Pastor Seth does, which is uh, read the Puritans, because they're such masters at yeah. making metaphors. Of course, read the Bible. Or well, the first one was from Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was a master at metaphors, too. Right. <laughs> Yeah, read, read the Puritans. Say, there's not, if you listen to modern day preachers, we're terrible at that. And sometimes the Puritans would go too far, like build a doctrine around it. But, but as far as uh, putting 
um, you know, chocolate chips in a cookie and making it sweeter. They, yeah. would, they were masters at that. Yeah. And they really helped me. Yes. Letter K, review and preview. Now, this week, my wife shared with me some discussion regarding classical education. Classical education is a method of educating that focuses on the good, the true, and the beautiful. Or, in other words, which is saying the same thing from a different perspective, classical education is that which attempts to train up the soul of the child to love learning. Those are two different ways to approach it, and there's other ways as well. And we are attempting to educate our children following that classical Christian model. And this week, my wife, who is constantly listening to uh, messages and lectures on classical education, uh, shared with me that there was a number of people who were attacking this idea of preview and review. And I really, let me, let me get at the core of this. Why are they attacking it? And when I, when I listened to some of their arguments, what they were saying is bland, boring repetition that doesn't add insight, that doesn't look at things from different perspectives, and when you have very little insight anyway, and you repeat at the beginning your, in, your, your comments that lack interest and zeal, when you give people food that has no salt at the beginning, and then you serve them food with no salt or sugar, and then you come to the end and say, now for dessert, I got something that's sugar-free. That's probably not going to go well. But what, what we should do is we should begin by stimulating the minds of the hearers to let them know This is how I will build the argument. Follow me because I want you to understand you are a rational creature and I want you to know what's happening and where we are going to go. I want you to be able to ask questions like why and how and what after I'm done. So build it up this way and this will be an aid to your memory. And then tell them. So for example, in my sermons now, I always have a section in my introduction called structure And in that, I write my main points. But I try to phrase them a little bit differently there than they are in the text of my sermon notes in an attempt to grip you, but not quite just say the same words over. Letter L. Anticipate the objections people might have and answer these objections before they ask them. When we get next week into persuasion, we'll see one of the most persuasive things you can do is to answer people's objections before they raise them. They'll say, this man thought and worked through these things. If he, did, if he thought thoroughly in this area, maybe I can trust him here as well. If his products in the shop here are good quality, then probably on aisle two, they're good quality as well. Letter M, repeat the most important thoughts in different ways. So the concept is drilled into the mind without exhausting the strength of your hearer. Those people who are giving the lectures that my wife was listening to were bothered because their strength was exhausted from mindless, bland, saltless, and sugarless repetition. But you are going to labor to be a teacher, which means when I say something, I'm going to repeat it and drill it into you, but I'm going to come from a different way. Often when I preach, I will say something And then I'll ask the exact thing I just said, phrased in a different way. And sometimes people can answer me. Letter N, ask questions frequently. What should you do? You should ask questions frequently. Rhetorical questions act like statements. They grip the mind. They're more persuasive. And if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is Stuart Olyot. The man who wrote the preaching book, he wrote another book 
called Ministering Like the Master, which is basically taking lessons on preaching from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And from that little book, I learned this. Count the questions in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's a lot of them. Our Lord preached with questions. Letter O, labor to grip the attention of your hearers using all your mental and verbal power. Attention-getting techniques must support the purpose statement and they must fit with the fear of God. I once heard a sermon when I was about 19 years old on missions at a large missions conference for young people. And I was zealous to be a missionary. In fact, I was preparing to go to Papua New Guinea. And in the sermon, at the end, a man said, after having preached about going to unreached peoples, he said, this many people are lost and going to hell. And most of you, and then he put an expletive, a crude word, a curse word in his sermon. And we were all shocked. And then he dropped his little joke and said, and right now most of you are more concerned about my use of that word than you are about the millions who are lost without Christ. As if that was a powerful and attention-getting technique. And instead what he had done is he had thrown all of his listeners into a moral quandary We really were tracking with you and love those people as best as we can in in the state that we're at. But then you came and put in this, which totally distracted us, and then made us think, wait, should I be thinking about it? You're right, that doesn't matter. The souls of men matter more than that. So I shouldn't think. When in reality, you shouldn't say those dirty words, and we should also love these people more. But you, the preacher, did it wrong. That is, he brought in something that was not fitting. It wasn't, it wasn't um, um, proportional to the affections. In fact, it was disproportional to the affections he was attempting to build up. So ask questions, use illustrations, vary your voice, use appropriate humor. Although I have to, I have to say that should be rare, and there are none in Jonathan Edwards' sermons, according to John Piper. But Spurgeon did say, better to cause a momentary laughter than a half hour's slumber. So, there should be the fear of God in our sermon. Pray and... Bad examples of attention-getting techniques, including repeating hallelujah or amen mindlessly. Have you ever been in a church service where people said hallelujah without any good reason? Have you ever been in a church service where now if you look back or if you watched it on TV, you realized he's saying that because he really doesn't have a clear conception of what he's going to say next. And he's walking back and forth holding the microphone and he doesn't have notes up there anyway. So he's kind of making this up. And he's trying to make up his speech and, and he's kind of run out. So, so he's, trying to, he's trying to push the car and get it to catch in gear. And while he's, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah, amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. And he was repeating these things and he doesn't have anything to say. That's faulty. That should not be used. Raising your voice to the point where the message is lost and the audience only thinks of how excited the preacher is. Each person can be excited or use his voice fitting with the passage, fitting with the, the truths that are being preached and fitting with his personality. Fitting with those things. 
So some people may be louder than others, but there comes a point when the use of the voice and even the tone says, I'm the showman. I'm the one. Remember me. When we go away, everyone will say how funny he is or how powerful he was or, ooh, he gave me goosebumps or goose flesh. If that's involved at all, you have used a bad technique. Using crude humor or language, Papa Nico has told me, Alfie's told me a number of times about a preacher in Venda who is now known for using crudities and even speaking about um, indecent jokes when he preaches or talks uh, in, in, in the name of preaching. Playing music while preaching, that's manipulative on the emotions of your people. It's following marketing techniques who say, if you play this kind of music, your customers move more quickly. If you play this kind of music in this kind of shop, you make more sales. If you, no, why are you doing that? What are you thinking when you do that? I love music. My wife's an unusually gifted pianist. My kids are practicing instruments. Not quite so gifted as their mother, but they're practicing. We love music. But it has no place in, in the preaching of God's word as a manipulative gesture or gestures and movement that make the audience think about the preacher instead of the truth that he is presenting. Well, preaching must teach the meaning of the passage or else it's not preaching. Are you a good teacher? Think about how you do with your children or with your wife. If you struggle to stay on topic with your wife, it's probably because you don't do a good job of making definitions like Isaac Watts taught us to do. Because what is staying on topic but making a good definition of what the point of the conversation was? Are you a good teacher? Are you laboring to become a teacher? May God help us. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. We ask that you would make us willing and able in the day of your power. We pray that you would come down to us and minister to us. Sharpen our knives. Make our blades able to cut through everything in the forest that's in front of us. That we might be the trailblazers and the pathfinders for our wives and children. For the churches you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.